Welcome. I'm Suresh Rao, Artistic Director and Co-Founder of the Indian Summer Festival, and we're glad to share this event with you. Indian Summer Festival's podcast series was recorded at ISF 2020. In response to the global pandemic, our 10th anniversary edition moved online with 10 specially curated events. From Grammy award-winning musicians to emerging poets, Nobel Prize-winning economists to visionary environmental warriors, this year's programming spanned literary dialogues, intellectual debates, musical performances, and interactive visual arts experiences. I'd like to thank a few institutions for standing by us in a difficult time and helping us to continue to present outstanding artists and serve our loyal and growing audience. Special thanks to our founding partner, Simon Fraser University, major partners, Langara College and the University of British Columbia, our emerging artist sponsor, RBC, music series partner, Creative BC, our funders, the Government of Canada, the City of Vancouver, Vancouver Foundation, Province of BC, and the BC Arts Council, and of course, our media partners, the Georgia Strait, CBC, and Spice Radio. Welcome to Joseph Stiglitz on People, Power, and Profits with Arjun Jayadev. Joseph Stiglitz is one of the world's most renowned public intellectuals and the winner of the Nobel Prize in Economics. The title of this event is taken from Professor Stiglitz's 2019 book, People, Power and Profits, Progressive Capitalism for an Age of Discontent, an authoritative account of the dangers of unfettered markets and moneyed politics. In this conversation with the brilliant Indian economist Arjun Jayadev, Joseph Stiglitz argues that the pandemic offers us an unprecedented chance for a new social contract to emerge. Thanks, Hirish. Uh, hi, Joe. It's really nice to be speaking to you uh, after a long time. Uh, although it'd be really nice to speak um, face to face, I think we've gotten uh, used to this way of communication with Zoom. And that's really because, of course, we're living through times which are really surreal. Uh, it feels like at the moment we're living this hinge of history, a moment of great crisis, which will open a door to a different future, which is sort of the theme of this um, conversation. But um, you know, one of the things that I've always felt, I saw this sign, which was really nice, which said uh, the future is going to be different. And that's uh, good because the last future that was awaiting us wasn't that great in the first place. <laughs> so, you know, we haven't had necessarily the healthiest society. And as Sirish was saying, Joe, you've been calling attention to our blind spots and our social arrangements for three decades now. I think there's really a sense that we've been having a rolling crisis, you know, in the 90s, then you had the Iraq war, then you had uh, 2008, and things have just been going on, 2016. And it's really sort of a complete unraveling, if you will, of, uh, you know, our ideas and ideology about how the world should uh, be run. Uh, I know it's a tall ask because I've been going over 30, 40 years, but maybe if you could just help us summarize since you've been there, what do you think has gone wrong? not just recently, but really over the past 30, 40 years, so that we're at this sort of amazing hinge in front of us? Well, that's a great question. Uh, I think what has gone wrong uh, is in some sense, there was a particular understanding of what makes a society work and what makes particularly an economy work. And that understanding, you, you might say that ideology, uh, was actually uh, incorrect. Uh, the view was that unfettered markets would 
result in a more dynamic economy from which everybody would benefit, a kind of trickle-down economics. And it would actually lead us to a better society so that while it was an economic theory, it went beyond economics. It was really saying that kind of market-driven society would be a better society. And I think now we realize that each one of these tenets was wrong, that a society focused on just materialism, just profits, uh, was not going to really meet human needs. Uh, it, 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 in fact, might exploit people. Second thing we realized was it wouldn't even succeed in maximizing growth. After the ideology of uh, uh, sometimes called neoliberalism, Reagan, Thatcher, supply-side economics, a lot of different words, but unfettered capitalism maybe is the best way of describing it, market fundamentalism. Um, Growth actually was slower than in the decades after World War II, where we had a better balance. And when I say better balance, it was even the Republicans in the United States, Eisenhower, uh, had a major government infrastructure program, an education program, a technology program. So it was a, it was a different vision on both parties. Uh, during Eisenhower, tax rates at the top were very high. Um, it was Reagan represented the break with history in that sense, and that it was the opening up of this neoliberal uh, neoliberal uh, doctrine. So. Uh, materialism, uh, one problem. Second one, didn't even succeed in maximizing GDP slowdown. And the third tenet was, uh, don't worry about inequality. Uh, Trickle-down economics. Uh, If the economy grew faster, everybody would benefit. Well, we now have 40 years of this economic experiment and the majority of people did not benefit. Uh, the top one-tenth of 1% did very well. The top 1% did well, reasonably well. The top 10% uh, got better. But the bottom 90% largely stagnated, and the bottom part actually decreased. It's interesting, from my perspective, uh, as an economist, and particularly as an economic theorist, uh, There was never any economic theory behind neoliberalism. Uh, You know, my own work was about the consequences of uh, imperfect information. And one of the things that imperfections of information make clear is that the more informed can exploit the less informed. And that imperfect information can lead to market power. And market power can lead to exploitation. And so one of the themes of my last book, People, Power, and Profits, the reason I have the middle word power is that what we saw is that unfettered capitalism is associated with the power of exploitation. And that exploitation is the source of a lot of the profits. So the old neoliberal theory said profits are a sign that the market is working well, you're inventing new products, you're, you're uh, uh, producing pro- products at a lower cost. 
So profits are a good thing. But when the big sources of profits are monopoly power, exploitation of the poor, like the, uh, the financial companies did predatory lending, uh, abusive credit card practices, market manipulation, insider trading, that's not profits that are generated by making people better off, it's by taking advantage of other people. And that's very much connected with the question you posed, why are we having so many crises right now? Unfettered capitalism led to the financial sector being able to take advantage of so many people and realizing that the government would bail it out as it has done repeatedly if things went bad, it engaged in reckless lending. It didn't do what it was supposed to do, which is differentiate between who was a good borrower and a bad borrower. So we had the financial crisis. But then we had uh, the drug companies taking advantage of addictive drugs, the opioid. So we had the opioid crisis. Just like the tobacco companies 50 years ago had said there, there's doubt about whether tobacco cigarettes cause cancer. There was no doubt. They knew it. They were lying. And that illustrates they were willing to make profits out of the lives of people. So it was really, you know, not just taking a little bit from the poor and taking money. They were actually willing to take the lives of other people. And then we had um, the, the uh, child diabetes crisis, the food companies selling uh, 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 foods that were addictive and child diabetes. And then we had Dieselgate, where the car companies lied about their, uh, 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 the pollution that they generated. The, uh, the, the oil companies lying and trying to persuade people that there was no such thing as climate change. All of this has led to a lack of trust in our institutions. And let me at this moment sort of connect that with this pandemic. One of the problems uh, in this pandemic, for instance, is uh, the lack of tests. And in a world with trust, you might say, given all the enterprises, all the ingenuity in the private sector, why couldn't the companies develop tests? And why did they have to wait on the FDA to get approval? The FDA is slow. And the answer is nobody trusts the companies. And for good reason. There are an awful lot of companies that will claim to have a test that doesn't work. And a test that doesn't work is worse than no test at all. Because then you think the person doesn't have it when they do, or you think they do have it when they don't. So we've seen the, you, you might say, the underside of capitalism is not only that it didn't lead to the prosperity, a shared prosperity, didn't lead to economic growth, it didn't lead to well-being of our citizens, but it led to the destruction of trust in our society. And that destruction of trust 
makes it very difficult to respond to the kind of challenge that the pandemic represents. And then I don't have to uh, uh, remind uh, anybody here that uh, uh, when you have a president who has no respect for science, no respect for expertise, and you have a complex problem like an epidemic, like a pandemic, uh, where you need science, where you need expertise, then clearly uh, the capacity of our society to respond is greatly undermined. And, yeah. you know, when President Trump got elected, he said he was going to make uh, the country number one. And he has made it number one in the number of cases of COVID-19, the number of deaths of COVID-19, the number one in the economic devastation of COVID-19. I'm not sure that was the platform he ran on, but that's what he succeeded in doing. And never society more divided as we've seen in the protests going on in the last week. No, you're absolutely right, Joe, because, you know, one of the things that, you know, this this issue of trust, um, it seems quite clear that we've had a situation where in the U.S., both parties in some sense, of course, there's very significant differences, but there's been a general erosion in trust in uh, in political parties, uh, I, I think, across, across the board. And you see a rise in this last, I think 2016 actually is the beginning of a hinge because you see you know, Brexit or Trump or the rise of strongmen, really an age of anger and anxiety. So, you know, in some ways, the the pandemic seems to have, you know, uh, brought out the weaknesses of our societies as well. So maybe you could speak a little bit about why do you think that we're moving to, you know, this kind of strongman society where across the world, whether it's Bolsonaro or Modi or Trump or, you know, Viktor Orban, you have all these people coming up and really kind of... um, Moving, moving societies to a much less healthy, healthy place. Well, one of the hypotheses that I explore in my book, uh, People, Power, and Profits, is uh, that the neoliberal doctrines, which were supported by the elites around the world, didn't work. Uh, so there was a promise that everybody would be made better off. There was a promise that financialization was going to benefit everybody, and it benefited the bankers, but not the rest of society. There was a promise that globalization would make everybody better off, and it benefited the big corporations, but not the ordinary people who were losing their jobs, especially in the advanced countries. Um, So the the disparity between what was promised by these so-called elites and what was delivered, I think has led to a, a, a view that those elites were just pursuing their own interest. And so they're looking for another model. Now, let me say very, uh, I think uh, to some extent that criticism is right, but those elites were financial elites, corporate elites. Uh, There were others uh, in academics, like myself, but many others that were saying, you know, what those guys were saying was not based on economic science. Uh, They were advocating, uh, putting forward arguments that were based on self-interest. 
yes, the financial markets said financial markets are great. Of course, that's what you would expect them to say. Uh, financial markets said deregulation would lead to a burst of energy. And we still hear that from the supporters of Trump. Uh, it led to a, a burst of reckless lending, not uh, a real economic growth that was shared prosperity. Um, and so in each of the areas, self-interest dominated, but not science. The scientists were warning us about the dangers of the addictive foods, of the opioids. They were warning us about uh, climate change. So in a sense, the scientific community, and I mean that both the economics and, and the, uh, the, the real scientists, uh, were actually saying something quite different from the elites. But not surprisingly, one of the things that had happened was we were growing inequality. And people made the incorrect inference that if you're so wealthy, you have to be smart. So they listened to the bankers. And as they listened to the bankers, the bankers told them to change the rules that allowed the bankers to get rich, uh, even richer. And so they said, we listened to the bankers. They seem to be doing very well. And they blamed themselves for not doing well. Mm -hmm. And now we realize it was systemic. The problem wasn't the people at the bottom. The problem was the economic system. Now, the first reaction was, ah, the leaks have uh, been dishonest. And we're going to go the other way. We're not going to trust these leaks anymore. And Trump, in a sense, was anti-elitist. Very wealthy person who had made his money by scamming the system. So you can say he was against the system, but in a very, very ugly way. You know, there are two ways of being against the system. One is to try to change the system to make it work better for you, uh, for all. The other one was to try to find the, the, the holes in the system. So you have a bankruptcy law and you use that to take advantage for yourself and leave your workers and your tradespeople, who, your suppliers uh, in the lurch. And that's what he did. So he was a scammer. Uh, and the fact that he got elected, I think, is a reflection of the very deficiencies in our system. The fact that the neoliberalism can undermine the moral fiber of our society, that somebody so immoral could be elected president is really a testimony to what had happened to the moral fiber uh, of our society. And if you look at Bolsonaro, um, the same thing. Uh, so I, I think that, that um, the basic humanity that, ha that, that should bring us all together, a sense of solidarity, uh, that had been undermined by neoliberalism. And so going forward, I think what we're beginning to learn is that these authoritarian figures, Trump, Modi, uh, uh, Bolsonaro, Orban, Putin, uh, have not been able to get their economies to grow well. They've been able to manage the pandemic well, 
um, they're, will, they're, they're able to incite divisions in our society, but uh, our societal problems can't be solved by us fighting against each other. Uh, these are, you know, this little bug, the COVID-19, uh, the only way we're going to fight it is through a, a sense of solidarity that I recognize that I could cause a disease by spreading the disease, it, spreading it. And so there has to be a sense of solidarity. And uh, so I think we're, hopefully we will go in that other direction. Uh, and that's what's so, in a way, hopeful about the protests of the last week in the United States. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's very clear that a lot of people across the country feel a new kind of solidarity in the racial divide that has been a part of America um, since expounding. Yeah. You know, I think that's really, right, Joe, you touched on two things which I just want to emphasize. The first is that, you know, the, the lack of trust in science and technocratic expertise, which I think we did to ourselves because we were uh, too timid to, to stick up for that. But also, uh, you know, something else which you mentioned, and I think to think prospectively, uh, there's a concern with COVID that we can't return to the economic arrangements of the past. Um, but there is a sort of flip to that, which is the flip side of that, which is that there is the idea that we will retreat in some sense to more na nationally circumscribed economies. And in that sense, it seems like some of the, these strong men and these ideas really uh, have a lot of purchase in the political, uh, in the political space because uh, the danger is that on the other side of this door, as we're talking about it, is a narrowly circumscribed ethnic majoritarianism, right? So clearly, I mean, let's, let's be clear, uh, Trump, Trump is a racist, but across the world, we've seen people are Islamophobes, uh, you know, really trying to, to bolster ethnic majoritarianism. Um, now, you're a person who's for a long time been worried about global governance and global public goods. And you just said, for example, that we really have to have the sense of solidarity. How can we go about it in this, in this era? I think it's a tough question, but I was wondering what you had to say. Yeah, well, I, I think, uh, first, uh, there, there are two preliminary remarks let me make. Uh, um, uh, these authoritarian figures are... Uh, using uh, na uh, uh, nativism uh, to uh, bolster their political base and to blame others for their failures. You know, it's obviously a lot of easier to say the reason the United States is not doing well is that uh, we're, we've been treated unfairly. We were taken advantage by poor countries. Uh, we were taken advantage by China. Uh, you know, the, the trade agreements are unfair. You know, the irony of it was that we wrote those trade agreements. It like uh, South Africa demanded that the United States sign a trade agreement with South Africa that was favorable to South Africa, uh, or that Mexico demanded the United States demand a, 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 North, a NAFTA, a, a, trade, a trade agreement that was unfair to the United States. Uh, who was the power in these uh, uh, negotiations? All the power was on the side of the United States. U.S. wrote those agreements. And I saw that in the Clinton administration. I saw that, you know, firsthand uh, of where the balance of power was. Uh, so we have to be clear, we wrote those agreements. When I say we, though, 
I need to modify that. It was our corporations that did it. It wasn't a democratic uh, discussion. It wasn't American workers saying, this is what we want. It was American corporations saying, this is what we want. So the international trade agreements were agreements made by and for American corporations against the workers everywhere in the world. So the first thing is, it's easy to blame others. And that's what these authoritarian figures are doing for our own failures, our own failures to adapt to the changes, to adapt to new technology, to train people, to, to create a more dynamic economy with shared prosperity. It was our problem. And it's, so it's really a, a shifting of blame. Uh, the, the second thing is there was what I call hyper-globalization. We did carry globalization too far in the sense that, um, we didn't think about resilience, uh, production, supply, global supply change with just-in-time production, um, where if there's a problem in, in, in a country, like presented by the pandemic, we, we were dependent on others. So we could have created global integration based on greater resilience, a greater balance, but we didn't do that. And actually, before the pandemic, the world was moving away from this hyper-globalization. So uh, the, the, the reality uh, is that... Uh, we had gone too far in financial deregulation before 2008, and we also had gone too far in uh, hyper-globalization. But the third point I want to make is the pandemic has made it clear that we live on one small planet. And this virus doesn't carry a passport, doesn't carry a visa, doesn't recognize national boundaries. And we're in it together. So this pandemic, like climate change, emphasizes that all of us share one planet. And if we can't solve the problem in every country, we won't solve it globally. And just like the same thing for the economy, we are a globally integrated economy. We will become less interdependent, but we will still be very highly interdependent. And that means we won't have a strong recovery until we have a recovery in every country around the world or every major country. So that means that we need more global cooperation, not less. And uh, our international institutions are not perfect. Our governments are not perfect. We ourselves are not perfect. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Shakespeare said to, to err is human. Uh, human fallibility is something I've written about. It's an inherent thing, and we have to design our systems uh, to take that into account. But uh, our international institutions have done a reasonably good job. If you ask the question, where would we be without the WHO, World Health Organization, it'd be much worse. The WHO has made a very big effort to uh, create patent pool so that when the knowledge that is being produced to fight uh, this disease, uh, therapeutics, vaccines, 
whatever. That knowledge will be used everywhere, accessible to everybody. So we can fight that disease as quickly as we can. Uh, the IMF, who I've criticized a lot in the past, has actually been very responsible. It, and it's been advocating a new issuance of what's called SDRs. It's like uh, money created internationally. $500 billion uh, of SDRs and is what it's proposed. Um, 40% of that would go to developing countries and hopefully the advanced countries would, would, would create, would contribute their, their uh, SDRs to a trust fund that would help the emerging markets in developing countries. So the point is the, the, the global leadership has really come from these international institutions like the IMF. So never before have we been so aware of the importance of our interdependence and the need for multilateralism. So, so I we'll come back to uh, globalization and uh, you know the the great global challenges that we're facing. But one of the things that you uh, said earlier about uh, having solidarity and these new movements which are pushing for solidarity brings me to a question that was asked um, by an audience member. I thought I should just. Um, quickly read it out and get your uh, sense of this. So this is about the Black Lives Matter movement that's going on. And he says, the movement, this is LJ Albert, says the movement for Black Lives website has consolidated the ask for defunding the police. Um, and one of the, the things that they ask is, we demand immediate relief for our communities. We demand the federal government provide direct cash payments, rent cancellation, mortgage cancellation, medical and other form of debt cancellation. We demand long-term economic solutions like a universal basic income. And so Albert asks, it would be awesome to hear Professor Stiglitz speak of the, to these from justice economics perspective as a way of contributing to the urgency of the specific tasks of this moment. Well, clearly uh, the pandemic has exposed uh, a lot of the weaknesses in our economic and political system. COVID-19 is not an equal opportunity virus. <laughs> it's going after uh, those with pre-existing conditions. Uh, it has hit those that are frontline workers who are expo more exposed to others. That means, uh, on average, disproportionately uh, poor individuals. And that's especially true in the United States where we, we have not recognized the right of access to health care as a basic human right. So uh, the disease has hit, hit particularly those uh, at the bottom and people of color who are disproportionately uh, at the bottom. Um, the uh, recovery uh, or the, the, the assistance that has been provided uh, has uh, not really met the needs. There was a lot of discussion originally that uh, we want to make sure that we keep people affiliated uh, with their jobs, uh, as many European countries did. But we had a very badly designed program and a badly designed program implemented by an administration that is noted both for its incompetence and for its uh, uh, lack of concern about inequality. Uh, and so uh, not a surprise that you have a program that was intended for the small businesses and it went to the richest of the small businesses and even some small businesses that were not small, but big businesses. Uh, 
Uh, and the people who are really small uh, did get uh, money. Uh, while the rest of the economy was put on stay, on hold, locked down, the banks kept collecting interest. And uh, with usury, with high interest rates, with fees, if you don't pay your interest, and fees upon the fees, and fees upon the fees upon the fees, the, the banking sector uh, it, it will be rolling in money while the rest of the economy is suffering. The very sector that we had to bail out in 2008, and obviously there's going to be anger about that. So we gave, uh, we spent, you know, $2.7 trillion. That's a lot of money, you know, no matter what, uh, uh, you, that's a lot, you know, about the deficit relative to the GDP, GDP in the United States this year is estimated to be 18% or more. That's a lot of money going from the government, but it's not going to where it's most needed. And it's not been very effective. I mean, the unemployment, 40 million newly unemployed. That's 25% of the labor force. The, you know, so we spent a lot of money, very ineffectively, not protecting the most vulnerable. Um, so it's very clear uh, that things haven't worked out very well. Uh, I think that there are programs that would have cost a lot less that would have protected people a lot better. And uh, part of that is not just spending money, but it, as the questioner said, uh, uh, issues like uh, um, a stay on interest. Uh, that student debt, which in the United States is one and a half to $2 trillion, should be a stay on that. And we did it for government debt, but not for, for others. Uh, we, we didn't do it for car loans. People are going to lose their cars. Without cars, we don't have public transportation. Poor people can't get to work. So there's a very big risk that the inequalities, which are already enormous in the United States, will get even worse because of the way we mismanaged uh, the crisis. There are alternatives, and I've been talking about some of the alternatives. Representative Jayapal uh, of the state of Washington has a, a program very similar to what New Zealand and Denmark have done that actually worked to keep people in their jobs, costing a fraction of what are, are the programs that went uh, to the better off uh, cost. Um, on the question of UBI, um, at this moment of time, where there are no jobs, or you know, the economy is basically shut down, and even if it, there's not a lockdown, people are not going to go to restaurants, they're not going to go to sports events, they're not going to go on the airplane, at least to the extent they have before. So we have to understand that the lack of demand in the economy is not just because the government forced the shutdown, it's because people are afraid, and justifiably so, about the spread of the disease, and they're not going to go to consume things in this moment of fear. Uh, you know, in, in the Great Depression, uh, Roosevelt, in a famous fireside chat, said, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. But we're in a different situation. We have something to fear besides fear itself, and that's uh, COVID-19, and it is something uh, to fear. And, 
while it's worse for people of my age, it can also affect people of, of, of your age. Uh, there's a lot of uh, mythology going on that it only affects older people in nursing homes and it affects them disproportionately, but it affects uh, uh, across, across the age spec, uh, cohorts. So at this moment of time, there needs to be a provision of universal support, uh, or at least a universal support for those who are most vulnerable. But it's a little sad that countries like Argentina are able to get money out to, say, the children who need it in three days' time. After the minister announced it, three days later, on Tuesday and Friday, they had the money. In the United States, our Secretary of Treasury said, for those people who need the money most, people who were poor and didn't pay taxes in 2018-19, it may be September before they can get that measly $1,200. And it was very clear, he wasn't worried about how they're gonna live for the next five months without any income. That wasn't his problem. His problem was to make sure that the airlines got their billions of dollars. That's what he was more focused on. So uh, uh, I'm not sure that given the incompetence of this administration, UBI would even actually work for them. But I want to put it in the longer term, after the pandemic, because I think we ought to be thinking more about the post-pandemic world, where there may not be a post-pandemic world, but the world that we'll have to get used to if there isn't a post-pandemic world. Um, we wouldn't want to go back to the world we had before the pandemic. That was not a great world for an awful lot of people. Uh, and our planet was at risk uh, with climate change, uh, uh, inequalities, uh, this neoliberalism, uh, you know, we had a lot, a lot of problems, uh, racial divisions. Uh, among the things that is very clear is there's a lot of things that have to be done. We have to make the green transition. We have to build infrastructure. We have to take better care of our aged. Uh, there are people who are not getting health care. So there's a lot of work that wants to, needs to be done. Yeah. And there's a lot of people who want to work. Most people want to work. They don't want a free ride. Uh, they, they want to contribute to society. There's dignity in work. So to me, the first obligation of our governments should be to make sure that there is a job, meaningful work, for everybody who wants and able to work. Yeah. But this is great. I mean, there's job guarantees and uh, UBIs and exactly. so on are now really much more uh, in, you know, in the public sphere than they were. And they were you know, more than in, even in the past. Um, so I, I would like to return to this at, you know, a little bit later in our conversation, including the questions about climate change and so on. But I want to quickly pick up on something because I noticed you were uncharacteristically nice about uh, economists as opposed to you know, corporate elites. And I feel like in, from 2008 to currently, we've been undergoing a rolling economic crisis. Um, and of course, you know, there used to be that mythology that uh, economists had solved the problem of depressions. Maybe just, <laughs> if you could just quickly go over what do you think economists have learned, uh, really learned, and uh, whether they, they have much to contribute. I mean, um, we wouldn't want to put ourselves out of a job, but nevertheless. 
Well, uh, in my book, Freefall, uh, I actually have a chapter where I, I talk about what was the role of the economist in contributing to the Great Recession. And uh, I have to say, uh, I think economists in general, I would say other economists, uh, contributed a great deal uh, to that Great Recession. Uh, and they did it by developing, supporting this idea of neoliberalism, market fundamentalism, that markets uh, would take care uh, of themselves and, and bring prosperity on their own. Now, I have to be uh, clear, uh, the uh, economic tent is a very broad tent. Uh, in the decade preceding 2008, uh, there was very good work uh, being done on behavioral economics, explaining people are not as rational as most economists had assumed. Uh, there was important work uh, on uh, uh, issues of uh, uh, game theory, which focused on lack of competition. Uh, my work on uh, imperfect information explained why uh, markets are not in general efficient whenever there's imperfect information or imperfect risk markets, which is every, every, everywhere and all the time. You know, I always just say, why is the Adam Smith's invisible hand invisible? The idea that pursuit of self-interest uh, leagues as if by an invisible hand to the well-being of society. Why is invisible hand invisible? And I said it wasn't there. Um, so uh, we had a lot of research explaining why markets don't work, work, work well. We even have research explaining why they were unstable. Mm -hmm. Could have a bankruptcy cascade, just like we had after the collapse of Lehman Brothers. The big fault was a very large fraction of the profession, and in particular the macroeconomics part of the profession, which was a very dominant uh, school, was wedded to the idea that markets work perfectly. So there was a kind of cognitive dissonance. There was a kind of uh, uh, closing the eyes. There was all this research explaining why people don't behave in the way that the macroeconomist said. And they pushed all that to the side. And they, it was, you might say ideology. You might say it was kind of religion. It was centered. I think there's a little bit of trying to understand, uh, to understand it. You have to, the centers were places like University of Chicago, where there was a belief in the free market. So macroeconomic ideas based on free market econ economics dominated. And that meant they were not worried about a bubble. Mm -hmm. They actually said things like, uh, Markets don't create bubbles, and even if it did, who are we as government officials to, to outguess the market? I mean, really stupid ideas, because they, you know the whole idea about economics is about externalities, about, about uh, imperfections. All of that was swept aside in this ideology. Now, we're talking about people like Greenspan, Bernanke. We're talking about some of the economic leaders uh, um, that just didn't understand in a very deep way 
the advances in economics that have been made. Now, to me, uh, the disappointment is in many ways what's happened since 2008. I thought that was a demarcation. You know, uh, you had seen that the doctrine hadn't worked. Uh, the Institute for New Economic Thinking, of which you've been very active, uh, was created to try to steer the economy in a different direction, uh, uh, make it uh, more aware of historical precedents about broader views. Uh, and it's been very successful among younger people. But uh, I guess it's another expression. Uh, uh, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And uh, a lot of the economists in that age group, 35 to 55, 60, very hard uh, to change their perspective. And since they play a very dominant role, you might say power within the economics profession, uh, the result uh, has been uh, disappointing from my perspective. Big changes, but not as big as one would have hoped. One more thing. Um, that's an example of, of where the doctrines uh, didn't keep up with the reality. One more example uh, is uh, climate change. Evidence about the importance of climate change has become stronger and stronger. You know, I was on the intergovernment panel on climate change, IPPC, uh, in the second assessment, uh, had the report in 1995, uh, group that shared the Nobel Prize, uh, Peace Prize with Al Gore uh, in 2007. And um, we even then could see so clearly uh, the dangers of climate change. We estimate, underestimated the speed. Uh, we under, uh, estimated the severity of what was going to go on, but clearly, very, very strong. You would have thought with uh, the existential threat, and this being a real example of externalities of, of one of the big issues in economics, the environmental constraints imposing a real constraint on our economic system, that uh, it would become a major area of economic research. And among young people in Europe, it has been. I spent last summer, last fall uh, in Paris, and it was a topic every student uh, talked to me about. But you look at the major American journals or major journals in general, it's really disappointing. The Quarterly Journal of Economics, uh, the major journal uh, published by Harvard University, has not published, I believe this is true, has not published one article in climate change. It, it, it doesn't, it pretends it doesn't exist as a problem. And to me, what's so striking are it's really difficult problems, <laughs> analytically and empirically. Uh, so it's not like it doesn't represent an intellectual challenge. It does, but it obviously hasn't grabbed the interest of uh, that part of the economics establishment. Okay. So actually this is 
you know, this is actually a good segue into the kind of questions that I want to ask, um, you know, again, prospectively. See, one of the things that I think um, I've always enjoyed, uh, you know, about you is that, um, you know, you've, you've always been, although you're clear, right, about the, you know, the problems, whenever I've talked to you, I've always felt like you also are thinking about solutions. You're thinking about things that, you know, one could think about prospectively, which will, which will actually resolve things, you know. You've, and we're living in this age of anxiety and anger. I think it's important to have, I guess, cheerful economists, you know, in the end, who are who will be, you know, trying to come up with some solutions. You know, there's that old Raymond Williams saying, uh, to be radical means making hope possible rather than despair convincing. So I'm very good at making <laughs> despair convincing. So I'm going to ask you instead to, maybe in two or three areas which we see are really globally uh, challenging areas. I mean, what makes you say... Uh, uh, think positively about what we can do about climate change, maybe to start, and then I can ask about a couple of other you know, pressing issues. Well, one of the things that makes me uh, optimistic, besides by maybe Midwest uh, uh, ingrained optimism, uh, is uh, the young people in the United States and around the world. Uh, you look at those protests, uh, they're overwhelmingly young, uh, they're black, white, brown. Uh, the idea of racial uh, racism is so antithetical to the beliefs of the young people, very deeply so. Uh, inequality offends them. Uh, they're demanding access to health care for everybody. You go through the progressive economic agenda, the progressive social agenda, the progressive democratic political agenda, and you see two to one, you know, three to one, they support the progressive agenda. And they're willing to go out and march for it. Uh, and I, hopefully they'll be, will go out to vote, and go out to uh, campaign in, uh, in, in this uh, so that's what gives me uh, hope. Uh, there are solutions. Uh, and one of the reasons I wrote this book, uh, People, Power, uh, and Profits, and the subtitle is Progressive Capitalism for an Age of Discontent. I wanted to talk about solutions, what I call progressive capitalism. Other people might call it social democracy. Uh, the name isn't so important, but it's saying... Uh, we need a new balance between market, government, civil society. We have to come together and lose kinds of solidarity, uh, new principles like uh, inequality, well-being. Uh, we, we really have to rethink our economic and political system, and we can do that. We can do that. So on the particular issue of uh, dealing with climate change, uh, uh, the Green New Deal is uh, a... Uh, new economic platform that began from the bottom up with our young people. Uh, movements like the Sunrise Movement. Uh, you know, the young people rightly said, we're going to be affected much more than you. And, you know, uh, I'll be dead before the real effects of climate change uh, will be there. But, but uh, uh, they will be, they will have to confront uh, the, the full force of climate change. Um, and uh, 
we've made progress in moving towards renewable. We've seen that the cost of renewables is not that much different, maybe even lower than the cost of fossil fuels. If we didn't have the subsidies to the fossil fuels, if we didn't have those special interests, uh, we could make the green transition. And countries in Europe like the UK, the EU, have made a commitment to be carbon neutral by 2050. Uh, so it is feasible. And I headed a commission with Nick Stern uh, where we looked at what was needed to be done to get to the Paris or Copenhagen goals of one half, two degrees centigrade. And we said a couple of things. One, feasible. It would not be that big of a turmoil to our economy, less than the effect of the kinds of fluctuations in oil prices that we've had in the past. But we have to do a lot more than we're doing now. Mm -hmm. So, and it would be actually good for the economy. It would probably unleash a lot of innovation as we start rethinking how we organize our society. Um, so, uh, Overall, it would almost surely be positive, not negative. Uh, but at, at the worst, it would be something that we could easily cope with. And the cost of dealing with it is much less than the cost of not dealing with it. Yeah. So, yes, certainly. And, um, you know, this is linked to, obviously, the, the idea of uh, progressive capitalism or social democracy, where you actually need to have more than just the market. You need to have a kind of social compact that, that pushes you towards that. And that the same is true for, I think, many of the things that you've talked about with respect to our response uh, to, to inequality. And I'm going to ask you that in, for, in a second, but I wanted to bring in, I guess, a very Vancouver or uh, uh, New York question uh, to do with inequality to, to begin that conversation. And this is the question from Am Joha. Um, how do we reestablish a healthy relationship between median income and housing prices in a corrupt market like Vancouver? What are some examples uh, of uh, successfully implementing policy in, uh, interventions and what are the long-term negative consequences of inflated housing costs? So a very sort of millennial uh, urban inequality question. Well, uh, first, uh, I think we, uh, the question reflects uh, a reality of the intergenerational inequality uh, that your generation uh, and those younger than you are facing. Uh, worse in the United States than in Canada, but everywhere, uh, when I say worse in the United States, our, our young people face a mountain of student debt, one and a half to two trillion dollars of student debt. So they know they need skills, they need a college education, uh, but uh, the cost of getting that uh, is leaving them with a, a huge financial burden. But everywhere, uh, they're facing the challenge of housing. Uh, the cost of housing is, is uh, you know, wages, as you said, have stagnated, but the price of housing has gone up. That, that raises a, a number of questions. Uh, why has the cost of real estate gone up that much? And I believe it has to do with uh, the financial sector. We've increased the amount of, of money that's floating around, liquidity especially, given to 
wealthier people. And what have they done? They put that money to work by buying land, not to making real investments, not creating real jobs, but buying land. So what has happened as you increase by an enormous amount, the base money supply is you create a real estate bubble. Now, the bubble broke in 2008. After that, how do we respond? By creating a new bubble. That's what we, so we've been inflating the price of land, making it more difficult for ordinary people, including young people, uh, to get adequate housing. One of the solutions was a very old solution suggested by Henry George in the 19th century, one of the leading progressives. Uh, and he said, a land tax. Uh, you know, uh, if you tax work, people might not work as much. If you tax saving, people might not saving, uh, save as much. But if you tax land, land is not going to say, I'm going to go on strike. I'm going to go away. Uh, if you tax the land in New York City, it's gonna, not going to say, I'm going to move up to Canada. Uh, it's there. And if we taxed land, it would uh, bring down the cost uh, of land. It would reduce the extent of real estate speculation. It would divert that savings into more productive uh, uses. Uh, and so it would be actually an agenda that would promote growth and promote equality. But I think you probably need to do more than that. Um, cities are complex places where people of uh, uh, various skills have to live and work together. I mean, we, we, as we found out in the pandemic, uh, we can't do many things. I can change a light bulb, but I can't do much more than that. Uh, and uh, uh, so we are very dependent on others. But the people who are we, we are dependent on are often low paid and have to live long distance away. And we have to remember that's a tax on them. If they have to commute an hour or two hours a day to get to work, that's a very big tax on their time and a, a very big effect on their standards of living. So we ought to recognize how much we benefit from them and say, look, as part of our solidarity, let's make sure that they can live in our same community. Um, we need more economic diversity in every community. And the only way we're going to get that is through zoning. Um, now, uh, in the absence of solidarity, uh, that zoning uh, can be undermined. And we've seen that in New York. Uh, there, there have been some terrible examples where we got real estate moguls, you know, uh, uh, we know some uh, who behave very badly. But uh, these moguls uh, have said, okay, uh, we'll build another building. Uh, we want an exemption from height restrictions or some other restriction. And in return, will make uh, our housing diversified, uh, economically diversified. Well, first, they tend to do the minimum amount necessary, one apartment or two apartments. Uh, 
But one of the one of the uh, real evidences of the lack of social solidarity is one of the buildings in New York um, did diversify had a limited amount of economic diversification, but it had a separate door for the poor apartments. So the rich people and the poor people wouldn't have to go through the, the same entrance and wouldn't have to bump into each other. Now that is undermining the whole function of trying to have economic integration in our cities. Yeah, so, I mean, this is an interesting uh, again, uh, set of issues that we have because you mentioned the fact that people come from a distance and uh, also that in some sense, a lot of uh, jobs and so on have become much more precarious now. One of the big concerns, of course, we have about the world is um, and the question of automation and precarity. Uh, the, the fact that we, the, Across the world, people are worried about employment issues, you know, whether it's um, uh, because of things like Uber and the, the gig economy, uh, or whether it's because of automation putting, you know, uh, well-paying jobs, um, uh, you know, uh, sort of getting rid of well-paying jobs. Uh, now, this is obviously a question where uh, one has to think carefully because we do want to have technological advances. We do want to have the ability to free ourselves from doing various things. But uh, that does require, again, a sort of uh, solidaristic way of going about this. So maybe you could speak a little about that uh, going forward. What are the dangers and how do we solve those dangers? Yes, well, well part of this is clearly uh, what has happened in uh, the last 40 years is the bargaining power of workers has eroded. Uh, at the same time that the skill requirements have increased. And globalization has played a role in, a role in the erosion of bargaining power, but so has other pieces of legislation. We've, we've undermined uh, the uh, provisions that uh, allow workers uh, to get together to unionize. Uh, they can still do it, we've made it much more difficult. In Europe, they change the way they do engage in collective bargaining, which undermines uh, the power that they have in success, uh, likelihood of, of success uh, in raising wages and protecting uh, them. Um, we undermine social protections. We always knew that workers were at a weaker bargaining position relative to corporations, and that's why we have minimum wages so they wouldn't be exploited. But the minimum wages in the United States now at this, uh, are lower than they were uh, 60 years ago, adjusted for inflation. And you can you imagine having no pay raise in 60 years uh, in an economy that's supposedly uh, getting richer and richer? So uh, we've really undermined the security uh, and the well-being uh, of of workers in, in many, many, many ways. And I have to say at the same time, we've increased the market power of corporations. And I mentioned before the, the, uh, the weakening of moral values has played a role. You know, uh, you would have thought that the richest corporations in America would have said in the midst of this pandemic, uh, we wanna make sure that workers who come down with COVID-19 get paid sick leave. We don't want them to work. It, it can affect the, uh, 
the workplace. So both from the view, view of humanity and the view of self-interest, you would have thought, you know, these richest employers would have said, we're going to pr- provide paid sick leave. But that's not America. And when Congress passed a bill for paid, mandatory paid sick leave just for COVID-19, the richest corporations insisted on being exempt, which the employers with more than 500 employees were exempted, which is a half the labor force. So we have this problem of uh, this lack of solidarity uh, across the population. All right. So, I mean, you did say a couple of things which I thought we could sort of uh, take towards the end of this, which is the notion of morality and values. And I'll take two questions from the audience, which I think uh, one is from Dharani Tiruchettapalam from uh, uh, UBC Soda School of Business. And the other one um, is from Carrie Sherman. So the first one says, in this time of transition, could you share your thoughts on how we can move uh, towards a more inclusive stakeholder capitalism model and away from shareholder cas- uh, capitalism, which serves only the privileged few? Uh, the idea extends to how we measure the growth of economies and so on. That's the first question. And the second question uh, says, I'm seeing more and more how decision make- making causes unintended consequences. My question would be, what are the considerations and what vision is required to ensure our decisions don't cause um, unintended negative consequences and help us see beyond short-term economic gain? So both sort of big moral questions, if you will. Well, both moral and economic questions. You know, the, the organization uh, of the corporate sector, should it be just uh, shareholder capitalism or should it be a broader vision of stakeholders looking at the customers, uh, the workers, the community, and the planet, the environment. Um, The ideology that I talked about earlier of neoliberalism, uh, Milton Friedman was the godfather uh, of this uh, idea, and he argued that it was immoral to think about anything other than shareholder capitalism, because you need uh, shareholder capitalism was necessary and sufficient for achieving uh, efficiency. And then distribution was a matter for politics. Now, one of the things I I proved uh, in the 1970s that that was wrong. Uh, And actually, Milton Friedman's argument shareholder capitalism was made after I had proven that it was wrong. But Milton Friedman in his later days became a propagandist for the right, not an economic scientist. So he never paid attention to these results. He never refuted them. He never responded to them. He just pushed ahead. And unfortunately, uh, he was a, a more persuasive than I as a young scholar at the time was in my mathematics that I'd written and published in, uh, uh, in, in several journals, never refuted in the, in the uh, 45 years since then. So these ideas are well established. Now, I, I felt a moment of, of uh, triumph, you might say, when last, uh, uh, about a, uh, a year ago, uh, not even that, uh, the... Uh, uh, head of the business roundtable uh, in the United States, the largest 
uh, companies uh, announced that they were supporting uh, stakeholder capitalism, which is the idea in Germany. And you know how you get it to work is a more complicated question. But they said we have to go beyond shareholder capitalism. And the question in my mind was: Was this a PR stunt? Was <laughs> a a, a uh, realization of the political necessity? that people like Elizabeth Warren had introduced bills that would circumscribe what the corporations could do. They were being attacked on all sides for their lack of social responsibility. Uh, and so was it uh, something, a, a defensive measure to say, oh, no, no, we're not just concerned about our shareholders. Uh, we are concerned, uh, a broader uh, concern. That still remains a question. But... Uh, I am very concerned. Uh, for instance, one of the leading financial companies in the United States, whose CEO has written all about uh, sustainability, uh, you know, good citizenship, corporate citizenship. Uh, you take one of the big issues that the pandemic has exposed. Uh, country, many countries are not gonna be able to repay their debts restructuring. Argentina is in the lead in this debt restructuring. Uh, we all know that a debt restructuring that is not deep enough will lead, it's not going to be sustainable. There's going to have to be another debt restructuring at great cost to the people. Again, short-sighted to do it because even the creditors won't get repaid. Yeah. And in this pandemic, people will die if you don't have an adequate restructuring. And that very firm that came out so strongly in favor of corporate citizenship has been one of the worst in, in, in uh, uh, the negotiation and insisting, hopefully this will change, so I don't want to be too strong, and I'm, uh, but their initial, their initial offer was well, well beyond what the IMF said was sustainable. Their next offer was well beyond, better, but still well beyond what the IMF said is sustainable. A couple of days ago, the IMF made clear again what they thought was sustainable. They said Argentina was at that limit, you know, near, or at that limit. The question is, will they act as a good corporate citizen or do they want to see the people in that country die uh, in their greed for more profits? You know, that's what it is all about. So we'll see whether this was rhetoric and whether there's a new capitalism. Or, uh, and I think uh, we'll get a very clear answer uh, in the next uh, few days. Now, on the second question, uh, very similar uh, uh, how do you prevent uh, unintended consequences? One important aspect of that is uh, you have to go away from short-termism, the, the point you made at the end of your question. One of the reasons that there were these unintended consequences of the excess risk-taking by the banks in the years before 2008 was they were focusing just on the short-term. 
one of the reasons our economy has not been as resilient as it should be in the face of uh, COVID-19 is excessive short-termism. I give a little metaphor to, to explain this lack of uh, resilience and this, and this excessive short-termism. Uh, our companies took out the spare tire from the car. They said, you know, most of the time you don't need a spare tire. Most of the time you don't have flat tires. So why carry around the spare tire all the time? That additional costs, we can, we can take off a $50, $100 from the price of a car by not having a spare tire. Well, to use that old aphorism, it was penny wise, pound foolish. Because you have a flat tire, you're the middle, you're 200 miles from a gas station. It really, really is very, very expensive not to have that spare tire. That's, to me, emblematic of the short-termism that has characterized capitalism in the 21st century. And if you are short-term, it is inevitable that there will be unintended uh, consequences. Uh, Germany uh, became very dependent on Russian gas. Uh, signed these agreements that uh, uh, made it more dependent on gas. Gas, you can't change your supply very quickly, and they became very dependent. That had geopolitical consequences. They didn't think about the risk that that imposed of a cutoff of that gas supply. What they were focusing on that they're saving a little bit of money today. Again, short-termism, unintended consequence. You couldn't anticipate that there would be the dispute, say, in Ukraine or in Georgia, or you can't anticipate every dispute, but you should have anticipated geopolitics is complex. So what are we saying? When you have this kind of short-termism, it is uh, almost inevitable that there will be unintended consequences. And that we see that in so many uh, examples. We see it in the uh, example of countries like Germany uh, deciding to uh, get Russian gas, making it very dependent on Russia, uh, even uh, uh, exactly what the future geopolitics is going to be, but you know the geopolitics has a lot of uncertainty. And you can't predict whether it's going to be Ukraine, Georgia, what country. But wisdom would have said there's risk. And we don't want to be that dependent on, uh, uh, on, on Russia. Yeah. Joe, you know, it's been really fantastic talking. I, I should say, you know, uh, India, across the world, we've been going through a rather surreal, hellish time in these last uh, a few months. I mean, just to give you a sense, in India, uh, we've had the pandemic, uh, the crisis of migrant workers, we've had um, locusts, cyclones, uh, you know, earthquakes, uh, really sort of biblical times in some sense. Um, and we've also spoken about very, very kind of difficult topics, things like um, uh, inequality writ large, climate change that we've just spoken about, um, Argentina's uh, fiscal waterboarding, and I, I like you, you know, really hope that Martin Guzman, uh, who's the economy minister, can really uh, put something together. Uh, but in all of this, I have to say, at the end of this, I still feel, and you've succeeded, uh, in making me feel hopeful. Because I do think that in some sense, 
you have given us a vision and for me for a lot of time for many decades you've actually provided a vision of something where it seems fairly obvious that we have to have a sort of solidaristic a social demo- democratic view uh, to go forward if we to survive uh, as a species uh, and i feel really hopeful and thankful uh, for you for doing that not just now but for decades with me and uh, with uh, many other uh, uh, viewers and, and people around the world so thank you so much joe but thank you thank you it's really great to see you again yeah it's lovely to see you Thank you so much Arjun thank you Professor Stiglitz um for taking us through that rather complex landscape thanks for being here tonight um please stay tuned be well be safe good night <laughs>